Well, I am very honored to be here, even if, yeah, we're up. I'm very honored to be here. I've been following this church for years, before you guys were even meeting at the Brick, and uh, I am very honored that I get to share a little time with y'all. Jason is someone uh, that I'm a big fan of. I'm very grateful that we are friends. Like he said, we started off as internet friends. It's kind of creepy. And then he invited me to come here to fly from Texas. Not super creepy. And then he said, after this, we're actually this afternoon going to fly to Israel, which seems like a plot in like the next Taken movie. So pray for me that that doesn't happen. Um, but I am grateful uh, to be with you this morning. As we continue in worship, let's pray. God, give us ears to hear what you have to say. Help us to be still and know that you are God and that you are the God who is still with us. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, so in our text today from Acts 16, Paul and Silas are going through town and there is a person simply described as a slave girl. And she's going behind them and she's saying, these men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. These men are slaves of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, when she says slaves of the Most High God, people are not thinking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're probably thinking of Zeus. And when she says who are proclaimed to you a way of salvation, they're not thinking of this, was, this is going to get you into heaven when you die. Salvation probably meant more like prevention from shipwreck or disease or some disaster. And this continues for days. And let me remind you what, what we just heard. This is Paul's response to this. She kept doing this for many days. If you have toddlers, think about it, like many days. But Paul, very much annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, here's the thing. I want to give you a little practical advice. If you have someone who's annoying you, do the biblical thing. Try to cast a demon out of them. <laughs> Is it always going to work? No. But the one time it does, it'll be amazing. So he's annoyed, casts out the demon. The demon leaves her. Now, in the book of Acts, which is kind of the follow-up to the book of Luke, there's a theme that what Jesus did, now the disciples, now the early Christians do. So there's a story in Luke 8 in which Jesus throws a demon out of a person into a, a herd of pigs. The pigs run into the lake, end their lives. And then the entire town is mad at Jesus. Now Paul and Silas cast a demon out of a woman, and her master sees that they're losing money, that she's losing money because she's not making money anymore. And so just as Jesus got in trouble for that, now Paul and Silas do. And so they end up in prison. And when they're in prison, it's midnight. They have stocks on their feet in the innermost part of the prison and they're singing. It's midnight, they're in the innermost part of the prison, stocks on their feet, they're singing. An earthquake happens and all the doors are wide open. And this is the third time in the book of Acts there's been some sort of miraculous prison break. Chapter five, chapter 12, and then chapter 16. But in this account, something that happens that's so unbelievable that the prison guard himself couldn't believe it. Because when he sees the doors fling wide open, 
he grabs his sword to do the honorable thing. He's going to take his life because he knows that's ultimately where this is headed for him. A prison guard who doesn't keep people in the prison loses his life. So as he's about to take his life, this is what Paul says. Here's the words from Scripture. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, do not harm yourselves, for we are all still here. Don't harm yourself, for we are all still here. Paul and Silas are in prison, midnight, feet in stocks, innermost part. Yet they are so free that when the doors open, they stay. And the prison guard is the one who literally has the keys to the prison cell on his belt. But he's about to take his own life because he's the most enslaved of them all. Because looks aren't always true. What you see isn't always what reality is. Paul and Silas are the most free people, even though they're the ones in prison. Uh, Richard Lovelace uh, wrote these words. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor do iron bars a cage. I visited friends and loved ones behind iron bars, and I visited with people who seemingly are free as can be, but they're actually the opposite. What's that a guy from uh, my church down in Austin? told me that when he was a uh, 51-year-old chemical engineer, his company said, we don't need you anymore. But we're not going to just kick you to the curb. We're going to give you full retirement at the age of 51. You just can't work anymore. You get your full retirement. And my first thought is, how do I get my church to do that for me? Full retirement. You're 51. Do whatever you want. You're 51. You have full retirement. And he tells me, that when that happened, he was scared to death. Because he imagined his life was going to have five more years at this company, and then he was going to move on. And even though he had all the money he needed, all of his retirement, he was scared to get to death because his life didn't go the way he wanted it to. And I know he's not the only one. Sometimes we have pictures, this is how life is supposed to go. At this point in my life, I'm going to have... 2.5 kids in a house with a picket fence and an SUV that has that little sticker with 13.1 on the back of it. Or by this stage of my life, I'm going to have this much money saved up for retirement. Or I'm just going to have my stuff together, right? I'm going to have my stuff together. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to save up. I'm going to eat right. And it doesn't go that way because that's life. And sometimes the thing that you can't pulled together is God. So maybe you imagine that by this point in your life, you'd figure out how prayer works. You understand how, how God is supposed to be there for you and how you're supposed to be available to God. You understand how you connect to God. It doesn't work. Sometimes it falls apart. At least it did for me. A few years ago, I was in a room like this. It was a big room. Maybe a thousand people were there. And the entire room is making these full-throated declarations about God. They're declaring who God is using the metaphor of Father. 
saying, you're a good, good father. And everyone's singing, you're a good, good father. Everyone is singing that except me. I'm a pastor. And it didn't used to be this way for me. So like my, my, my story begins as a high school kid, a sophomore. And as a good evangelical, I started reading my Bible. And it changed me. Started reading scripture every day and, and it changed who I was, changed the decisions I was making, changed the trajectory of my life, changed how I talked to people. So I go off to college and I get a few degrees in theology, become a pastor, work at a few churches. But as I look back, I realize what I was doing is I was, I was trying to make sense of life that didn't, that didn't make sense. It's kind of like... Um, Tom Hanks' character in Castaway. You guys remember that movie? He had his friend Wilson with him, right? So like, I was like this Tom Hanks guy, like on the beach, and I was, I was terrified of the water. And no one ever told me to be afraid of the water. I just knew I, I don't want to be anywhere near it. And so I did what I could, and, and faith was my way of keeping it at bay. And so every time life didn't make sense, it was like I, I would build this barricade with whatever was around me, which was sand, Stack it up. And anytime water started to creep in, I would just put more sand there. And so when I didn't understand how, how God was good, but the world was often anything but good, it was just, I'm going to throw some more Bible verses on this. I'm going to read a few more books. I'm going to listen to the right sermon. When I couldn't get the Bible to live up to my expectations for what a sacred text should be, it was just like, I'm just going to throw more sand on this, and I'm just going to double down on what I'm doing. And eventually, I... The water kept coming in. And so I'm in a room like this and there are a thousand people saying, you're a good, good father and I can't make a sound. And it wasn't one thing, it was all the things. It was the Bible's inability to live up to what I think a sacred text should be. It was God's desire to never fit in the nice, neat box that I made for what God is supposed to be. It was my mom's chronic illness that never got better. It was the divorce that radically changed my family. It was my first job out of school that was an absolute train wreck. And so I'm in a room with everyone else making these full-throated declarations about God. And I couldn't make a sound. Because how are you gonna sing when your lungs are full of doubt? In the book of Acts, there's some weird stuff that happens in worship. Like our text for today, there's a worship service that happens in prison at midnight. Seems peculiar to me. There's another story in, in Acts 20. And there's this guy named Eutychus. Eutychus. Some of you are thinking about baby names. <laughs> Eutychus. So Paul's preaching. It's midnight. And they're on the third floor. And Eutychus is sitting in a window. And he falls asleep. And he falls out the window. Now, a lot of people look down on Eutychus, but if you'd have fallen three stories, Eutychus too. <laughs> That's your cheesy joke for today. Might not be your last one. So he dies, he falls asleep in church and he dies, which to me, punishment fits the crime. But then Paul goes over and prays for him, which if one of you fall asleep and die, I'm not praying for you. It's your fault for falling asleep. But he comes back to life 
Because in worship, out of death comes life. In the presence of the community and God, out of defeat comes hope, and out of fear comes resiliency. Uh, Richard Lovelace, who said, Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage, wrote these words why, while he himself was in prison, the king had given an edict that Lovelace believed to be unjust. So he made a choice. I could either do what the king says and be outside of a stone wall, or I could be behind iron bars and do what I believe to be true. So he did. Because what Lovelace knows is that freedom, true freedom, isn't about what's around you. It's about what's within you. It's about what's within you. One of the things about faith is when it seems like it falls apart, the answer is not to go backwards, but it's to go forward and find what is in there. Jesus in Luke 5 says these words that you've heard before if you've been a part of this community for a while. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled. And the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. If you put the new stuff in old wineskins, it's all going to be destroyed because it'll burst. When you're 51 and your company says, we're done with you, and you expect that this is what God was going to do, God's going to let me work this way, my career's going to go this way, it doesn't happen. You, you can't take what's new and put it back in that old bag because it doesn't fit. I have a friend at my church in Austin, one of the saints of our church. Her name's Miss Betty. Miss Betty just turned 92. And um, f- she refers to me as the Luke. So every email, it's all in caps, the Luke. I love it. Every Sunday I get an email from her. Uh, if she's sick or not. And she's amazing. But five decades ago, Miss Betty and her husband Dave, who was uh, then a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, had two small kids, and Dave gets sick. Five decades later, Miss Betty tells me that she just knew God was not going to let something happen to Dave because she had two small kids. Month later, Dave passes away, and Miss Betty is a widow with two small kids. And when your expectation is this is what God is going to do for me and it doesn't happen, you, you, can't, you can't go backwards. You've got to go forward. And for me, I, I felt like the water was terrifying. It was, it was unknowing. It was mystery. It was, it was acceptance of my powerlessness, and I wanted nothing to do with it. So I tried to keep it away, and I, I would pack the sand deep, and I would barricade myself as well as I could with whatever religious practice I could find. Until I eventually realized that that water was not trying to destroy me, but it was trying to deliver me. It was not living water that was trying to take life away from me. But it was living water that would give me what I needed. Because freedom is not about what's around you, it's about what's within you. Catherine of Siena is a saint. The Catholic Church has given her the highest designation 
the, that of doctor. In the 14th century, she writes these words. She says, You, O eternal Trinity, are a deep sea. And the more I enter, the more I find. And the more I find, the more I seek. O abyss, O eternal Godhead, O sea profound, what more could you give me than yourself? What more could you give me than yourself? Because what we find is when we are trying to keep our life together and say, this is what it should be, and God, this is how you're supposed to be, and this is what the Bible and church and faith is supposed to be, and it doesn't go that way, what we hear is the same voice that the jailer heard. And it says to us, do not harm yourself, for we, the eternal Trinity, the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, we are all still here. And that's the beautiful thing about the story of Paul. He's in prison and he starts singing, not when the earthquake opens the door, but while his feet are still in fetters. Because true freedom is not about what's outside of you, it's about what's within you. It's the voice of the eternal Godhead saying, do not harm yourself for we are all still here. About 400 years before the book of Acts takes place, there was a, a Greek playwright from Athens named Euripides. And Euripides was a, a well-known playwright. Uh, there's actually a phrase in chapter 26 of the book of Acts where Jesus says to Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Kicking against the goads. That phrase actually comes from one of Euripides' Plays. Now, to us, it sounds peculiar, the phrase kicking against the goads, but in the first century, it was a common phrase. Actually, I'd encourage you to try to make that phrase more common, because it's fun to say, kicking against the goads. So, the book of Acts, the writer was named Luke, great name if you ask me. Um, so, he obviously knows Euripides' work. That's included in chapter 26. Now, here's something peculiar. One of uh, the thoughts that some literary scholars have is that this story in Acts 16 sounds eerily familiar to one of Euripides' other plays. Because in one of Euripides' other plays, there's this, uh, uh, this story that happens. There is a person spreading a new religion who happens to be the god of wine, Dionysius, in disguise. And uh, Dionysius, in disguise, spreading this new religion in a new region, which gets him in trouble, which means they throw him in prison. And when he's in prison, there's an earthquake at midnight and the doors are open wide. Sound familiar? Paul and Silas spreading a new religion. They get incarcerated. There's an earthquake at midnight. The jail cell flies wide open. Now, what's most important to me is not that these two stories sound the same. It's how they're different. In Euripides' story, Dionysius spreading the new religion, in prison, earthquake, doors open wide, and there's a jailer. Now, the jailer's given a name, Pentheus. And Pentheus doesn't receive this new religion, and so he's destroyed. In the book of Acts, Paul and Silas, preaching the new religion, end up incarcerated, in jail, midnight, doors open wide. There's a jailer, but this jailer receives this new religion and, save, and is saved because these men are slaves of the most high God who proclaim a way of salvation. 
I say there is a way to be saved. It's not about going backwards. It's not about changing circumstances. It's about receiving who God is right here and right now. And the reason I, I wrote that book that Jason talked about, and I shared some of this stuff from my own experience, is because I wanted to be just a small voice in the great cloud of witnesses who says, even when faith doesn't go the way you wanted it to, and you can't make sense of everything, there still is a voice from the heavens that say, do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And you don't have to go backwards, but you can go forward. So a few weeks ago, Jason uh, came down to Texas. Uh, he talked with our staff, walked us through some of the, the core values that you all have. Our church, uh, internally, we've still been talking about the phrase, um, fields, not factories, which I know is one of your core values here. We really love that a lot. And so we love what he was teaching our staff, but I didn't love what he was teaching my daughters. In the church, we call what he did false teaching. Uh, so my wife and I, we have uh, three daughters. My oldest daughter is Avery. She's 10. Uh, our seven-year-old is Adeline, and then our youngest daughter is named Audrey, and she's four. And Jason actually recorded this heresy that he was communicating, and so let's play this clip right now. I hope false teaching is funny to you. Yeah. Oh, they would throw you in stocks for that in some places. That's terrible. Uh, so that's my, uh, my four-year-old daughter, Audrey. Uh, back in July, uh, Lindsay and I, my wife, we're going to take our three daughters to Abilene, Texas, which is three hours to the northwest of Austin. My dad was retiring uh, from being a college professor, and so we we're going to celebrate his retirement, and then I was going to hang around on Sunday and preach at a French church in town. And so Friday morning comes around, and my, my wife is a neonatal ICU nurse, and so she's the medical expert in our family. And she says, Audrey has a fever. And so she's not feeling up to going, so she's just going to stay at home. And so I'll take the two bigs, and she's going to stay at home with Audrey. Which at first was like, like, I know what it's like to go to the in-laws. I mean, if you want to use this to get out, I respect that. Like, whatever. No shame in that. We've all done it. That was, a, that was a test. I haven't ever done that. <laughs> and so we leave Friday morning, me, Avery, and Adeline, and Lindsay stays at home with our youngest. So we do our thing. We celebrate my dad, go to church on Sunday, do the preaching thing, and then we're coming home Sunday afternoon, or Sunday evening at this point. And Lindsay calls and says, Audrey's still not feeling good. Her fever hasn't broken. She's real achy. And so... I'm going to take her to Dell Children's Hospital to see what's wrong. But she said, don't worry about it, because I don't think it's a big deal. And again, she's the nurse. I don't know anything about medicine, so she said, don't worry. I didn't worry. So we have dinner, me and the two bigs, get a message uh, while meeting from uh, the editor of Max Lucado. Do you guys know who Max Lucado is? Like, I'm Church of Christ. Max Lucado is Church of Christ. So he's basically like a saint of the Church of Christ. 
So I get a message from his editor and she says, hey, I heard you preach this morning and I really like one of those stories that you told. So would you write it up and give it to me because I think Max could use it. And so I'm like, Max Lucado wants one of my stories? Like I was in the grip of grace, right? Like I heard the applaud of heaven. If you don't know what those are, those are his titles. And that's why he wants my stories and not yours, okay? Um, and so I, I get home and I call my friend Jonathan, who's also a preacher, and I tell him what's happening. Like I'm not even like humble bragging about Max Lucado wanting my story, it's just straight bragging. I'm like, I'm sorry if my success makes you feel like you're on the anvil. Um, get another And then Lindsay calls. And it's just something in my, my spirit just, just dropped. So I hang up with Jonathan. I switch over and she says, Luke, you need to come up here right now. They think Audrey might have leukemia. So my wonderful mother-in-law shows up in a minute and, and I head down to Dell Children's Hospital. And in that moment, there's nothing I wanted more in my life than for my daughter to be okay. Nothing mattered. Max Locator didn't matter. A book didn't matter. Nothing mattered. So we sh I, I get to the emergency room, and Lindsay's talking to a doctor, and they're both talking over my head. They're smarter than me. I, I don't understand everything they're saying. I don't understand medicine, but I understand faces. And there's a weird thing. Uh, I actually tell a story in the book where years before, Lindsay said the doctors were worried that Adam, our middle daughter, uh, was sick, and so they're going to do the leukemia test for her. Now, if they were telling that just to me like a layperson who doesn't know medicine, they would just say, it's a test. But since it's a healthcare professional, they know what the test is for. And so I thought, well, maybe this is just another one of those, like just a test, and they're just being really direct because it's, it's a nurse they're talking to. But her face didn't say that. And more tests came back, and blood work came back, and they said, it's, it's looking like it's that. And so you guys go home, it's two o'clock in the morning now at this point, and then we'll call you tomorrow. So we go home, and I still have this sliver of optimism. And I wake up, and Lindsay's grabbing my arm, says, get up, Luke, we've got to go to the hospital. The, the doctor called and said, we need to be there right now. And in that moment, all my optimism evaporated. And I just wanted my four-year-old girl who was sitting in the back seat of my truck to be okay. So fast forward two days, it's, it's now Wednesday and the bone marrow biopsy has come back and says that she doesn't have leukemia. It's the best news I've ever received in my life. And it wasn't until that moment that I understood the phrase survivor guilt, have you ever heard that, survivor guilt? I didn't understand that until I was still in the oncology floor with my beautiful daughter, my amazing family, and there was a room next to us that had a crib that was empty. It wasn't until I understood the phrase survivor guilt. And so that's Wednesday and we get the best news possible. And unfortunately, not everyone gets that news. But on Monday, I'm in my truck and I'm driving to the hospital and all my optimism has evaporated and my little four-year-old daughter's in the back seat And I don't know why, something just came over me. And I started to sing. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. 
And I was singing those words not because I felt like there was some magical phrase like hocus pocus that would get me the circumstances that I wanted. I wasn't singing because I thought that was gonna be like the shortcut for me to get out of the jail that I was in. I sang that because I sensed something in my spirit from the heavens saying, do not harm yourself for we are all still here. We're all still here. So whatever jail you're in, whatever circumstance surrounds you, may you hear today the voice from heaven saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. Let me pray for you. God of heaven, may you give us the grace to hear your declaration for us. May you give us the grace to be still and to know you and to hear that still, quiet voice that continues to whisper to us, do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And so my prayer for us is that we would be strong and courageous because we know that you are with us in all things. And all those who agree say, amen.